I'm preaching to the book of Acts. If you want to be opening your Bible there now, uh, we've been going through the book of Acts, and we will be going through the book of Acts because I see, I'm just certain that that's what God would have us to look at now, and it has absolutely been tailor-made for our church, um, these texts over these last several weeks. And I tell you, last Sunday was just a beautiful spirit in this church last Sunday morning. And I thank him for that. That comes from God. That doesn't come from us. That comes from God or comes from allowing us to let God do it. He'd do it all the time if we let him, you know what? And so thank you for being submissive to him last week and sweet, sweet spirit in this place. Peter has preached a dynamic and powerful sermon. That's where we had left off last week. And I'm going to start reading in verse number 41. After he'd preached this powerful sermon of his, and actually this is the first sermon of the early church, the first sermon in the early church. It was preached by a man who just some days before had said, I don't even know who Jesus is, and denied the Lord Jesus. And yet God filled him with the Holy Ghost of God. Oh, don't the Holy Ghost make a difference? And he filled him with the Spirit of God. He preached this mighty, mighty sermon. And verse 41 says, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. That's why I want to know if you're glad today. Because if you're not glad today, you're going to have a hard time with the book. They that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added in them about 3,000 souls. And they continued... And that's a word you really need to underline in your Bible. And they continued, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, breaking of bread, and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. Wouldn't it be great again that if we could, that God could do such a mighty work in our churches that the pagans would be afraid of us? Wouldn't that be be wonderful? And all that believed were together. That shows where you are. All that believed were together and had all things common. And they sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all Men as every man had need, and they continuing, you see that word again? And they continuing daily, continuing daily, not weekly, not from Sunday to Wednesday, not from Wednesday to Sunday, but they continuing daily with one accord in the temple when breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness. Uh Uh-oh, there it is again, gladness. Of course, I never have known anybody that didn't eat with gladness, amen? And singleness of heart, listen to this, praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church, not to a group, but to the church daily, such as should be saved. I believe the Lord led to any church that's continuing. If you're not continuing, you won't see addition. If you're continuing, you will see addition. So let's pray today. 
because I want to talk to you on this subject. Where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? Here we got 3,120 converts. Where do we go from here? What are we going to do? All these people saved. All these folks now ready to follow God, ready to obey God. What do we do now? What is next after being saved? Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, speak to us today and thank you, God, for uh, the worship today. Thank you, God, for the, um, the, the pieces of the spiritual puzzle that you always put together and make it to be what would glorify you and God would honor the Lord Jesus in everything we do. We want that to happen today. And God, I realize we fail in many, many, many ways. But I pray, Lord, today that I would trust that and know that you will never fail. So, God, I pray as we take our weakness that, God, we realize that that's your strength. And, Lord, help us to preach in power and help people to hear with gladness in Jesus' name. Amen. Many people has a definite experience of salvation and conversion. They're sure of that. They're confident of that. And no doubt that is true. But that seems to be about all they have. They get saved and they go no further. They get saved and they go to church, but they go no further. They get saved. They might accidentally even make it to the choir, but they go no further further and so here he's talking about what we're to do after we get saved what's now what's next where do we go from here when we've seen such a mighty holy ghost pouring out revival that we've seen what do we do what keeps us going what keeps us going day by day week by week month by month year by year what keeps us going well, for many, salvation is kind of like the lift off of the uh, uh, experience of the Challenger several years ago. You remember that? The thrill of the takeoff and everybody's eyes was glued upon it, but it didn't last long. It was just a short time, and it all exploded and blowed their experience into oblivion. And a lot of Christians are just like that. They start off, and they're everybody's eyes, and they say, wow, they're doing great. But just a little while, their experience explodes and they never do anything or get anywhere for God. Can I get a witness today? So every Christian needs to know where to go when they get saved. What comes next? Well, I'll tell you something, preacher. I'd do a lot better if there were some churches that was perfect. Well, you find me one. Because when you join it, you'll mess it up. I heard about this young boy, he's graduating school, and he call, called up his best college professor, and they'd got to be good friends. He said, now, he said, I, I want to be a pastor. And he said, I want you to find me a church where there's no problems. He said, I can recommend one to you right now. He said, where is it? The cemetery chapel. That's the only one. Has no trouble. They ain't going to say a word. They ain't going to vote on nothing. They ain't going to get upset about nothing. They ain't going to get mad about nothing. So that's it. You don't want no trouble? Go to the graveyard. And if you want no trouble, go to a dead church. Because there's no trouble there. Because it's already dead. Why should the devil waste his time there? You say, well, I don't think the church ought to have any opposition. Listen, if you're somewhere where there's no opposition, you're not where you ought to be. 
because when you're serving Jesus Christ and God doing something, you can flat out mark it down. You're going to have opposition from hell. It will come. And that's what we're talking, that's what we're going to be seeing today is what we're to do while those kinds of things start happening all around us, where are we to go from here? Salvation don't seem to be that active, controlling power in our life like it should be. Like the two little boys that was hoeing cotton down in Alabama when airplanes first began to be seen in the air, and one of the little boys looked at the other and said, I'd hate to be up yonder in that airplane. And that other boy said, I'd hate to be up yonder without it. Amen. (laughs) And some of us is like that. We just hadn't got up there. We hadn't got much further than the ground. We've got nowhere for God. And so let's just look at what God would have us to do today because Jesus said, upon this rock, I say I. About this rock, I, say I, will build my, say my, will build my, say my. Upon this rock, I will build my church. He didn't say he'd build it on a program. He said, I'll build it on a person. He said, I, don't, I will not build it on an organization. I'll build it on an organism. He didn't say, I'll build it on crowds. He said, I'll build it on Christ. Amen. Dr. Rogers used to say something was always a blessing to me. He was my hero, and, and, and I, he said this. He said, God didn't call me to fill the pews. He called me to fill the pulpit. I tried to live on that. I don't really care what comes back from the pews. Sometimes I let it get to me, but God didn't call me to fill the pews. You see, you, Joel Osteen can fill the pews, You'd smile real big and tell everybody they're going to get rich someday and fill the pews. But God didn't call me to fill the pews. He called me to fill the pulpit. And that means we preach the word of God here. Also, he didn't build it on our performances. He built it on his power. Don't you like it when singing is not a performance? When it's real. When it's from the heart. And you sense that today. It wasn't somebody putting on a show for us. It wasn't, it wasn't church glamour land. It was Jesus' church shining. So here in Jerusalem, something new has happened. First of all, there's been the birth of a church. As the breath of God blew, blew over it and in and through 120 waiting people, a church was born. Secondly, there was the preaching of Christ. Peter preached and the moving gospel message of Jesus Christ. And by the way, it was a long sermon. Verse 40 said, and with many other words. I got that underlined in my Bible six times. Many other words. You think anybody complained that day? I doubt it. I doubt it. I doubt they was looking at their sundials. Saying, when's he going to shut up? No, no. They loved what he had to say. They hadn't heard a message like that in their life. It thrilled them, the resurrected Lord, which meant they could live forever. They wanted to hear as much about that as possible. 
And he preached, the Bible said, with many words. And so he preached that convicting message. And as a result of it, there was that pricking of conviction as he preached the message of Christ. And the Holy Ghost's sword stabbed them to the quick. And they became under conviction of God. And the plan of conversion, how they should get saved, was laid out. That they were to repent and to receive what Christ had done on Calvary. And they could be born again. And that they could be saved. And then he gave them the promise of the Comforter and the Holy Ghost of God fell. And on that day, we had 120 in the room and 3,000 more who now is filled with the Spirit of God. Can you imagine that? Now, we have over 2,700 members. That is very, very deceiving. Somebody asked me about that other day, so I just want to clear that up. When I come here to pastor 28 years ago, on a very, 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 very good Sunday, we might have had about 90 for preaching. We'd have about 30 on Sunday night, about 12 on Wednesday night. That was our crowd. We operated in the red for three or four years, about half in the red and half in the black. We never knew. Crockett was just moving things around just to keep us going. He said, I decided I'd do two things. I'd keep the lights on, pay the preacher. I said, I'm decided. I'm glad you decided on number two. Amen. But, but at that time, they didn't have much to pay the preacher, so it didn't really make a, a, a whole lot of difference. And, and so I, I began to, to think about just how good God's been to us. But when I got here, we had over 700 members, almost 800 members. But I didn't know where they were then. I don't know where they are now. Those members, I don't even include. But about 1,500 or 1,600 of those 2,000 that's left, we see sometimes. You know, they, they swap out. They do tag team. They call and say, are you going today? Okay, I'll come next Sunday. You know, that's the way they do it. And so we really don't. That's deceiving because we have members we don't know a phone number we don't know an address we don't know where they're alive we don't know where they have their dog listed or their cat we don't know nothing about it nothing about them and so can you imagine though 3,120 Holy Ghost on fire super field super duper saints of God what are you going to do with that crowd what's next What's next? Where do you go? They're all filled with the Holy Spirit. Where, where do you go with them? Well, let me take, let's, let me take, take to where I think, first of all, this, the first place you ought to take them. After they've come to the place of salvation, the next place you ought to take them is the place of identification. And that's the place called baptism. Acts talks about it, how that, verse 41 they that gladly received his word were baptized. Folks, listen, you don't have to argue about where you should get baptized or not. If you get saved, <laughs> well, what's your problem? If you ever get saved, being baptized won't be a problem for you. Let me tell you, we put people in the saddles of men's arms and their own brother, carried, carried, their brothers carried them up these steps right here and like a saddle, we baptized them. I'm, I'm telling you folks, some of them, well, I just don't see any need in that. But the person that got saved did because they knew they may not be around here long, but they were going to a place because Jesus rose from the dead. They lived forever and they wanted everybody to know it. 
And so he took them to the place of identification. Baptism identifies you with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's why we put people under the water. We submerge them. We overwhelm them. That's baptizo. That's what that word means. And we pick them all the way up. That's resurrection. That's what happened when you got saved. You was dead in your trespasses and sin, and God raised you to newness of life. And one of these days, we're going to go to be with him in our new bodies. And so, baptism is an identifying factor. It's kind of, I tell the kids, before we baptize, it's like their mom and daddy's wedding band. If their mom and daddy ever wears one, it's like their wedding band. Let me ask you, if your husband slips in some night and forgets, and he hasn't got his wedding ring on, What's your first thought? He was with somebody tonight that he should have been with. He didn't want to be identified with me. Let me tell you something, folks. If you're not willing to follow the Lord Jesus in believer's baptism, and I know there are exceptions through times we have to have to make all kinds of adaptations sometimes to do it. But listen, if, you're, if you are just saying, well, I don't think baptism saves them, so I'm not going to do it. And by the way, baptism don't save. Jesus saves. But I won't tell you something. I don't find one person in the Bible that ever got saved that refused to be baptized. Why? Because it identified, it put the wedding band on. That's our engagement ring until Jesus comes and gets his bride. Can I get a witness? And so there's the identification. It's kind of it's kind of like the little boy. He came and he gave his heart to Jesus. He looked at the preacher. He said, preacher, I've been saved. Now I want to be advertised. Well, folks, he had it pretty right. You know it? When you get saved, you get baptized, you're advertising that you are now a child of the king. And so he there was the identification. And thirdly, I think we need to go to uh, determination. We have to teach people that if you're going to be a Christian, you've got to be determined at it. There's got to be continuation in your life. You've got to continue what God started in you. Philippians 1, 6 is a great verse for you to write down. It's one of my favorite verses of Scripture. He hath begun a good work in you, will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. You, you need to teach people that when they come to know Christ, that God's going to be working in their life. And that if they rebel against him, he's going to keep working in their life. And he's going to bring them to conform to the image of his dear son. And so uh, we need to pe- teach people something about determination. We're teaching a generation right now that we, they, don't, we, we, they don't have to go to church just when it feels good, just if it's okay. Saturday night would be fine if you hadn't got time for Sunday morning. Sleep in on Sunday morning if you worked hard all week. Just put that off. Sunday night, nobody has Sunday night. We don't need to do that stuff anymore. And on and on and on and on. And instead of us doing less church and less loving on each other and less getting together with God's people, we're doing lesser and lesser and lesser and lesser instead of more and more and more. So we're teaching people not to be determined. We're teaching them really don't matter where you are or not. Taking up a cross don't mean anything. Walking every day with Jesus doesn't mean anything. Living for God every day doesn't mean anything. 
So what's next after your salvation? First, your identification. Secondly, is your determination. You ought to say, dear God, I don't know. I don't want to be like the children of Israel. I don't want to wander 40 years in the wilderness. I want to be determined to live for you. Yes, I know I'll fail. Yes, I know I'll mess up. Yes, I know I'll trip up. But God, I want to confess up at that time so you can lift me up and I can start back up again for Jesus Christ. That's what he said. So you show me a believer who is steadfast in his determination to follow Christ and his determination to be loyal to his church, and that's a Christian that will grow. You show me one who's not determined, I'll show you one who won't grow. Won't. In fact, those who are not steadfast, <laughs> you're going to have a hard time in your Christian life because according to 1 Peter chapter 5, you can't handle the devil. You, I mean, listen, you don't even have a shot at him. If you're not determined and steadfast, you can't resist the devil. According to 1 Peter 5, verse 8 and 10. You can write it down and, and, and read it. it. It'll tell you that. You see, Jesus uh, was not being cruel when, when he told a man to go back. He said, well, he said, I've got to go back and bury, uh, bury someone in my family. He said, no. He said, I want you to follow me now. Let the dead bury the dead. Jesus wasn't trying to be cruel. He was just trying to find out who was determined. Well, we wouldn't like that today. Some Baptist preacher would get up and say that, he'd be hunting him a job the next day. But see, we don't preach too hard like that anymore because we are afraid we'll be hunting us a job the next day. I got news for you. You can get up and fire me this morning if you want to. But I ain't compromising one inch for none of us. Just get it down, write it down, seal it down, put it in the back of every one of the songbooks, write it in the back of every one of the Bibles, write it on your bottom of your shoe, wherever you want to. You can say what you want to about this preacher. You can gossip all you want to about this preacher, but I'm not backing up for none of you. You didn't call me. You sure didn't save me. You didn't die for me. You didn't come up from the grave for me, but the one who did is the one who called me, and the one who did is the one who gave me that spiritual gift and said, you use it because if you don't, there's somebody out there who will. And I want you to get God's best, and I want to get God's best. So we got to be determined. I thank God for our determined people in our church. Some I've seen go through horrible things in their life, but they just kept loving on Jesus and serving Jesus and following Jesus. That just blesses me to see someone that determined to say, oh God, I'll follow you wherever you lead. Wherever you lead, I'll go. But then there's a, another thing we need to do. And this is also something we hear very little about today. The next thing we, next place we need to take them is to indoctrination. Look, they, the Bible says, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Now, here was 3,000, 3,120 members that was taught by 12 men. Best we can tell, 12 men. That's a pretty big chore. You'd have to have some pretty good-sized Sunday school classes, wouldn't you? So, but these taught, these 12 men taught what Jesus had taught them. 
And so they was teaching them so they could teach the next generation, so they could teach the next generation, so they could teach the next generation until they got to us so we can teach the next generation. I wanted my kids to always know this, that daddy may not always be right, but daddy will not back up. Because doctrine is one of the most important things. All it means is the teachings of Jesus, the teachings of the Bible. That's what doctrine means, teaching. Why, could we, why should we back up on that? Why should we change our minds about, well, you know, I used to believe that, but I don't believe that anymore. Why not? Why not? Last I checked, the words hadn't changed. His truth endureth to all generations. It stays the same. I'm glad it does. I had a hard enough time to remember it now. And God kept changing on me. I'd really have some problems. And so would you. So we need to teach our people doctrine. You say, why? Because there was some doctrines that's not good out there. You know, Jesus warned them against the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees in Matthew chapter 16, Matthew 12. And in Matthew chapter 15, he warned them about the doctrines of the commandments of men. Again, he warned them in Romans 16, 17, avoid them which teach contrary to the doctrine which you have learned. And Ephesians 4, 14, he says, make sure you get the right doctrine lest you be blown away with every other kind of doctrine. So get your doctrine right. The doctrine of the apostles was Jesus' doctrine. You say, what was that? Well, first of all, it was a doctrine of growth. It was like fresh rain to tender grass. Jesus' teaching was growth. You say, where do you find that? Just write down Deuteronomy 32, verse 2. This is what he said. Moses said this, Give ear, O ye heavens, and I will speak and hear, O ye earth, the words of my mouth. My doctrine shall drop as the rain. My speech shall be distilled as the dew and the small rain upon the tender herb and as the showers upon the grass. Have you ever noticed during a dry time, which we hadn't had this summer, it rains every day, you know. I, I, I think we're in the Caribbean or somewhere. It's just like, and by the way, we certainly have a lot of people to pray for across this country, all of Believers and even unbelievers alike up and down our coastlines uh, from uh, Texas all the way up to the uh, uh, to Georgia uh, coastline. We need to make sure we pray for them. But we need to make sure that when in the times when it gets dry, I, 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 I sometimes will say, God, can, can I just kind of do something to spice this thing up a little bit where we can just make it grow. And God said, won't you just keep doing what I tell you doing, hush? Now, he don't say it in those words. He's nicer than that. But sometimes it gets kind of tough, you know. He, but, but God, we, 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 we're not growing or at least don't look. He said, you let me take care of the growth. You just do what I said do, and that's preach the Bible. Because he said, when you preach the Bible, he said, it's like drops of rain on tender grass. Uh, like in the summertime when it normally gets dry, you remember, especially around here, we've got all those limestone rocks. You can look out across the do uh, your yard and tell where all those huge rocks are, can't you? Yeah, because there's big brown spots right out there, about that much dirt on top of it. And, and if, you try to, if, if you try to plant a fire, 
put a post hole or something in it. You, this is not going to happen. But all of a sudden, it'll come a shower of rain and that dead grass. You look out there and it don't look dead anymore. It's starting to brighten up. You know what? If we'd get our ears tuned into this book, we'd start to grow. Our church would start to grow. We'd start to grow. But it's also a doctrine of exposition. Isaiah 28, verse 9 and 10 says it ought to be taught line upon line and precept upon precept. That's how it ought to be taught. That's why I believe in expository preaching. That's, I believe, the best kind. It's what the Bible says in Isaiah. But it's also a doctrine of obedience. In John chapter 7, verse 16 and 17, he says, he said, if you do my doctrine, you do my will. He said, if you pay attention to what I'm saying, you'd know what you ought to do. Let's move on. Here's the, here's the last, here's, here's, the, here's the, I don't know if it's the last thing or not, but it's close. Next thing we need to see is we need to take them from there to association. And that's probably not even a good word because it's the word fellowship. That word fellowship means to associate, but it doesn't mean just to associate. It means to associate with a tightness. It means doing more things alike and liking doing it. Does that make any sense? It means do more things alike and liking doing it. It's not saying, well, we'll do it, but I just don't like it. You can't have fellowship like that. Like when my wife tells me to do something I don't want to do, I'll do it, and I'll kick the door and kick the dog and hit the screen. But you say, I'll do it, but I don't like it. How many of you men say amen? Y'all's chicken, chickens, chicken. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. But you see, at church, it ought not to be that way. When we start doing the things of God, we ought to say, man, I want to do more of God's stuff, and I want to like doing it. I don't like, that's fellowship. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, one of them is giving. 2 Corinthians 8, 4 says giving is a fellowship. Let's take another offering right now. <laughs> right now. Come on. We'll just take another offering because giving's a fellowship. Well, preacher, I just don't believe in giving because all them preachers get that money. Well, I've got news for you. They don't. They don't. Some of us steal a little bit if we need some along, but other than that, that's all. <laughs> oh, boy, that'll be on Facebook, won't it? <laughs> Woo! Y'all get that, friend? Somebody type it real good. Get it right. See, folks, when we give our tithes every week, and by the way, I give my tithe just like you give your tithe. I know we give a tithe. I give an offering every week. In fact, back... In the days when we could, we, we was tried to do 17, 18%. We tried to go up as much as we could until we got sick. And then things had to change a little bit there. But we, we, we tie just like you do. I wouldn't ask you to do something I won't do. I won't ask you to do something that God hadn't told me to do. And so tithing is a fellowship. When we take an offering, that's a fellowship. You know why? We're sharing and doing the same thing and liking it. Do you like to give? If you do, raise your hand. Count them off. Deacons, get their names right now. Every hand. We want to know who you are. And giving. 
fellowship. Let me tell you, but now listen, you're going to think this, you, you're going to think this is different, okay? Listen, suffering is a fellowship. Mm. Philippians 3 verse 10 says suffering is a fellowship. You know why? Because we were able to share in each other's sufferings, and that's called a fellowship. Now listen, that don't mean we like the pain that they're going through. It means that we like the opportunity to help them and comfort them. Okay? Here's another thing. It's a fellowship. Our testimony is a fellowship. Did you know what we can all share today? We can all share the fact we know Jesus. Now, I got to move on, but listen, uh, walking in confession is a fellowship. 1 John 1, 3, that's where you find the testimony is a fellowship. 1 John 1, 6 and 7 says walking in confession is a fellowship. Not just confessing every now and then, that's not fellowship. Fellowship is, is that every day when we walk with God and there's a little sin that's in our life, that we get it right with God that day, and what we're doing is we're sharing in our confession. That is a fellowship. And God's pleased. So, association. You remember, we don't do it much anymore because nobody knows what it means. It's only mentioned in the Bible one time. But those old folks like me, you remember how when somebody gets saved or somebody joined the church or somebody would come forward or whatever the case might be, they would say, now we want you all to come down here and give them the right hand of fellowship. Travis, you remember that, brother? Yeah. I didn't see how old he is. He, he's not, he looks young, but he's older than you think he is. But they would say, right hand fellowship. I just had to admit, when I was little, I didn't know what they were talking about. I didn't have nothing in my hand to give them. You know, right hand of fellowship. Well, I soon found out when I read the Bible in the book of Galatians, he talks about the right hand of fellowship. The right hand meant that that was a show of power, a show of strength. Uh, and so when we take that right hand and we place it in the right hand of another, we're saying to them, we want you to know that we're with you, brother. We're with you, sister. And we're sharing everything with Jesus Christ with you. And you just walked into a fellowship today. If you walk down this aisle today, when people put their hand in your hand, you may not call it that. We may not call it that, but that's the right hand of fellowship. You say, I'm left-handed. Well, then we'll do the left hand of fellowship. No, we don't. I don't do nothing left. Nothing left. <laughs> if it ain't right, I'm not doing it. I don't want to be on the left of nothing. So, here, here, here's the last thing, and I'll be done, okay? And, or the next of the last thing. Here's where we take them next. We take them to supplication or prayers. Now, before we get them there, we take them to commemoration, which is the Lord's Supper. You really can't pray too good until you've been to commemoration. In other words, until you understand, again, afresh and anew, that Jesus loved you so much he shed his precious blood to pay for your sins. He loved you. And he sat around a table one night, knowing that the next, that that night they were going to come and take him and they were going to hang him on an old rugged tree and he was going to die for their sins. And the Bible says that we're told to do this in remembrance of me. And so when they would gather together, they would remember Jesus. And then the Bible said they would continue in prayers. Why? Because they could talk to him. You know why they could talk to him? Because they knew he was alive. 
You see, the one they sat around that table with that night, they knew he was fixing to die. Ah, but three days later, he wasn't dead no more. And so when they're praying, they're talking to someone who's alive. And so we take them to supplication. A church, someone said, is tallest when it's on its knees, and it can reach higher when it's on its knees. Mm, I like that, don't you? Well, let let me give you this, and we'll go home. The last thing we all take them to is in verse 43, and that's what I'm calling confirmation. Look what it says about the fear here. He said, look what it says. He said, fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together. There's that fellowship, and had all things common. Do you see the unifying fellowship of the fear of God? Someone asked me, I think it was my daughter. Not exactly sure why she asked me this. But Angie, I think, asked me this question not long ago. She's seen me having to fight the battles over the years and deal with people and get lied about and talked about. I don't do it in front of Sharon. She'll knock your block off. (laughs) Angie's got grace. Don't say it in front of Sharon. She forgot grace when you start talking about her daddy. But uh, Angie called, I, I don't know where there was a paper being written or where she was um, giving out something for her class or what it was. She said this. She said, Dad, I need to ask you something. I said, she said, what? I said, what? She said, what are you afraid of? I said, nothing. Nobody. I said, wait, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. I take that back. I said, number one, I'm afraid of God. I'm really afraid of God. I said, all God's got to do is to say, don't breathe anymore, and I'm gone. All God's got to do is say, I'm taking my gift and bringing it home, and so you get to come with it. I'm afraid of God, and I'm afraid of sin. Those two things I'm afraid of. I'm not afraid of none of you. Some of you are bigger than I am, but that's all right. I've been whipped before. Don't bother me. Some of you are a lot bigger than I am. But I, I, I said I've been whipped before. Now, I wasn't this old when I got whipped before. I know it's going to hurt more this next time. But the truth of the matter is, I'm really not afraid of anything. But I am afraid 